Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 2 Corinthians, reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, you may turn to Psalm 129, back where we will continue our series. And as we come to God's word, let's pray. And Father, we ask that you would lead us into all truth today. We confess with your church throughout time and in all the centuries the promise that you have made that the teacher is here and that he's calling for us. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Through the summer, we have traced the ancient songs of Israel, commonly known as the Psalms of Ascent, that Israelites, faithful Israelites, traveling to Jerusalem three times a year would sing. They were pulled together at some point as a small hymn book, and this was something of the greatest hits of Israel, their top 15. They are simple, they are carefully crafted hymns, and encoded within the words are the values and beliefs, the longings and desires, the affections and cares of the people of God. They still capture those for us today. Today we do come to Psalm 129, and we find a theme that has become common in these Psalms of Ascent. It is the theme of opposition. It's not the first time, because we saw this in Psalm 120, and again in 121, and again in 123, and again in 124. They emphasize this, making one distinct point for us that can be uncomfortable. And the point is this, that opposition is part of the Christian pilgrimage. The Christian life, no matter how we cut it, involves conflict. Such adversity is not new to us. Our world has long been a treacherous place. If you survey the broad history of the Bible, back to the early pages in which Abel is murdered by his brother Cain out of jealousy for his offering. Abraham and Sarah were taken advantage of by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in his overbearing power. Jacob was manipulated by Laban. Joseph was disowned by his brothers. And then he was unjustly imprisoned. 
Moses came in and out of the favor of the Israelites depending upon the day in which way the wind was blowing. And then the prophets in the later ages, they didn't fare well either. They were not listened to and they were even killed and disowned by their own people. The story is consistent. And then it arrives at Jesus, who was full of sorrows. He was tempted by the crowds to fulfill his kingship in a way that wasn't native to the heavenly kingdom of God. He was tempted by the devil himself, that he would find another path to power, that he would have rule over the nations. He was, of course, maligned. He was mocked. And then his body was reduced to a bloody pulp. This was the opposition and affliction that Jesus encountered. And very troublingly, he promises us that we will have that same type of trouble. And why exactly is it that we can expect such trouble and affliction in the Christian life? Why? Because our world resists the grace of God. As we all participate in Adam's shame, there is a resistance and a rejection to the grace of God and whoever happens to represent that. And twice in the psalm, what we have is a reminder of the depth of this affliction. First, the liturgist leads the people in it in verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then he cues the congregation, let Israel now say, and what were they to say? Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And so for all the generations, there's one thing that bound them in common, young and old alike, is that they experienced opposition and affliction. They knew what difficulty was. But then as you track into the end of verse 2, you find a profession of faith in the midst of that hardship. Yet they have not prevailed against me. So despite all the hardship, despite all the difficulty, despite all the trials, the psalm celebrates that the afflicted have not been overwhelmed and overcome, that they have not won, that God has actually won. Their faith is intact. It is strong. And the question in front of us this morning is how? How do you find a faith that strong that can endure all the potential and possible hardships and conflicts and afflictions that we face as we serve God? There's three things that we'll look at that Psalm 129 leads us in very briefly this morning. The first step to this that we find in the psalm is that we recall the victory of God. If you follow with me in verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. It's important to follow the logic. After the afflictions have been named, and after the profession of faith has been stated, here we find another statement of confidence that God is righteous, and he therefore has cut the cords of the wicked. To profess that God is righteous is simply to acknowledge that God fulfills every word that he has ever spoken. That when God has a plan and God has made a promise, he will deliver on that plan and promise for his people. It was announcing that God is the one who has the power to deliver them. And then he moves on to further fill that out, that God has cut the cords of the wicked. The cords are referring back to verse 3, 
where it's been explained to us that the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This was a description of affliction. It's a metaphor, a very powerful one, in which a team of oxen are pictured, yoked to a plow, and that our afflictions are like that plow being driven over our back. Very graphic. And yet God has cut the cords of the wicked. What is being envisioned here is that the reins or the cords latched to the oxen that then pull the plow have been severed. And so the plow has been disengaged. The plow has been rendered useless. And this is what we are to recall in the middle of all affliction and hardship is that God has rendered all of that affliction and hardship and those who would render it to you, he has rendered them fruitless. That it doesn't have ultimate power that God has won that victory. And of course, God has accomplished that victory in his son, Jesus Christ. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul tells us that he has disarmed the principalities and powers that trouble us. He has disengaged them. That though they may still appear and though they are still present, they have been set aside and they have been relativized. That they don't have control over our lives. Jesus, of course, did this in a unique way. That Jesus wins the victory of God by being plowed under himself. That is that he submitted to the power of evil, went under death itself, was crushed under its yoke. And yet, because he was the one righteous one, in whom no sin was found, Peter tells us that death couldn't hold him. And so he crushed death. He rose out of the dead on the third day. He's victorious. And because he's victorious, God's promise to you is that you share in Jesus' victory as you look to him in faith. And so the principalities and powers have no hold over you, even if they're present still in our world, that they've been defeated, that your victory is Jesus' victory, and you share with him. And that is what we are summoned by God to recall, that even though our afflictions are real, our afflictions are relative, that they've been defeated, that God has overcome them in Jesus how exactly does it work, though? You see, perseverance is not a matter of your determination. That is just of you balling up your fist and white-knuckling it and saying, I'm going to make it. But rather, perseverance in the Christian life, through all our afflictions and through all of our hardships, is a product of faith. It's a product of a faith that understands God's commitment to us in Jesus. And that when we are in Jesus, Paul argues at the end of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No affliction, no hardship, not even death itself. That nothing the world can wield at us separates us from God's love and commitment to us. He perseveres in that commitment. He's faithful to that commitment. He doesn't fail in any way. And so in the middle of all of our hardships, this is the first place we turn to the victory that has been established, that the cords have been cut, 
that the oxen have no right to trample us and to bring their plow along. Yes, we may experience those afflictions and hardships, and we share in Jesus' sufferings in so many ways still in this life, but they have no overcoming power in our lives. They do not overtake us. The second piece as we follow the psalm is that we turn our adversaries over to God. And that is in the middle of affliction, they are normally very personal. That our hardships are normally the result of the relationships around us. That we encounter people who make life different. What we find here in verse 5 is this statement. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. This is the language from the Old Testament that makes many people in church pews blush. Did the Bible just say that? May they be turned backward, those who hate Zion? What exactly does it mean to hate Zion? To hate Zion is simply to be opposed, to not share in God's plans and purposes. It's to be one who is on the outside of the church. And what God frees us to do here is that when we experience affliction and opposition, that the response to that is not to deny it or to repress it, to act as if it didn't happen. But rather, what God frees us to do is to acknowledge that experience. We actually bring it to him in prayer. All the frustration, all the difficulty, all the hardness of that situation. When we face that kind of opposition... We bring it into dialogue with God. We don't act like it didn't happen. Perseverance is not resignation, that just what is will be. But rather, perseverance is bringing all of that hardship to God and expressing it. And then entrusting our adversaries to God, who alone is wise and who alone is just. And this is the marvelous thing that's happening in these exchanges as we bring our opposition and our adversaries before God, is that we're, not, we're releasing ourselves. We're releasing ourselves from the burden of exacting revenge. We're actually entrusting them to God and allowing him to then execute what is just and what is right. In prayer, we make our enemies God's problem. We're released from that burden. We let go entrusting the outcome of their actions to God. Several years ago, I was speaking with a mentor, and during the course of that conversation, a certain individual in my own life came up in the midst of the conversation, and he was one who had been somewhat of a nemesis and troublesome figure in my own walk with God and service of him. And in the course of the conversation, it came out that he was still in positions of influence and had not been held accountable for various things that had gone on in his life and in the lives of those around him. And there was suddenly a flash of anger that emerged from me. It just came out of nowhere. I was somewhat ashamed by it, and then my mentor asked me, making the comment, you still haven't let it go, have you? Now, I could tell myself all I wanted that I had, that I was over it. But the anger, of course, was revealing. It was a diagnostic tool, and God was inviting me into something different. He was inviting me into these psalms where I could learn to entrust my adversaries. I could learn to entrust my opponents to God. 
that my response could be not one of revenge and retribution, that my response was to allow these enemies, to allow these opponents, to allow these adversaries to be God's problem and not mine. And there was great freedom in that of not stepping into the prerogative of God, not jeopardizing myself in that way and recognizing that unless I took that step, my own faith was going to falter. And this is the key to this for persevering faith. You see, because what was happening to me in the anger is that I myself was becoming an angry and unrighteous person in holding on to it and holding it over someone and wanting secretly for retribution and revenge, not entrusting it to God, I too was becoming an evil and wicked person, putting good veneers on it, but nonetheless unrighteous. And this is the beauty of taking our adversaries to God, presenting it before him, laying it at his feet and allowing him to be the one who deals justice. The final piece of the psalm, as we talk about what it means to persevere, is that we have to take the long view. If you follow in verses six through eight, the prayer continues. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. These are actually a complicated set of verses in which we'll have to follow very carefully. But what we are welcomed into in these verses is that our faith frees us from living in the tyranny of the moment. What we have from God's promise is that the world as it currently stands is not what it always will be. That God promises that Jesus will return one day and the world will be made right. And the frequent image that's connected to that is one of a harvest. That there is a harvest that's coming. And in that harvest, there will be fruit, there will be wheat, and there will be chaff. And so what we have here in the psalm is we're being drawn into that imagery of God's judgment and God's salvation. And as the psalm unfolds here, what we learn about the wicked is they are those who plant in shallow soil on top of a rock slab. It's the image that we're given here, is that they plant upon a roof. And so everyone knows if you plant and look for a harvest from the roof, are you going to have a bountiful harvest? No. And so what the, what the psalm reads then, in, in somewhat of jest, no one then walks by and says, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Because they know that that's not going to be a bountiful harvest. That those who oppose God and his purposes will not reap in the way that they expect to. They will not find it bountiful. It will not be meaningful. It will not be full and it will not be rich. They plow and they sow to no purpose at all. As they plow and as they sow in shallow dirt on top of a rock. Things may go well with them for a time, but when we take the long view, when we put it out in front of us in terms of God's time and what God intends for the earth and for his people, that it will not endure. 
There's nothing impressive about that harvest. And the key to perseverance for us that we learn here is that we have to be focused upon the goal, that we have to keep an eye on the distant future as to what God's purposes and intentions are. And as we draw from that and as we look to that goal in faith, we actually find the resources and the confidence and the hope to continue on. We find God nourishing us and strengthening us, nurturing us to that great goal of persevering in our faith and looking to the day to come. And so how do we persevere? We recall the victory of God, that he's cut the cords of the wicked in Jesus, that he's broken all the principalities and the powers, he's crushed them underneath when Jesus rises from the grave. We learn to entrust our enemies to God in a delicate prayer in which we hand them over, letting go of the anger and the retribution and allowing God, who alone is qualified to be just. And then we take the long view. We look for the day to come, and we allow that day to come back into the present, that it would give us resources to endure, to plant in soil that's fertile, not upon a roof in shallow soil. That's the path towards perseverance. Let's pray, and let's ask God to help us with it. Father, we acknowledge that our lives are lived in conflict and opposition and adversity. We also acknowledge that we're very slow at times to bring that conflict and that adversity and that opposition before you. That so often we avoid it in prayer, and yet it's the very place that you would teach us to process it. And so grant us confidence that you have cut the cords of evil that you've trampled it down in Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and that his victory is now our victory. Teach us to pray. We need help to know how to entrust our adversaries to you. And teach us how to take the long view, to look to the great harvest to come. And may we not be short-sighted and plant and sow in shallow soil that doesn't bear fruit. Remind us of these things. May we be watchful in them. May we meditate on them, and may they direct us in the path of perseverance. We thank you for the freedom that we have to call on you this morning, that you're good and gracious and you welcome us into your courts, that we make our prayers known in and through Jesus this morning. We're mindful of those in our world today who suffer on account of their faith in Jesus that as they stand in his righteousness, as they are washed and clean before you, they are shamed by the world around them, and many suffer greatly. We ask, God, that you would encourage them, that you draw near to them tenderly and sensitively, and that you build them up in their faith and in their confidence, that they would know that you have cut the cords of evil. And in that great hope, God, may they continue to stand and find the resources to persevere. We ask, God, that you will bless those who are the enemies of the faith, who are opposed to it, that you would lead them to repentance, that they would find grace and forgiveness, that like the Apostle Paul, once known as Saul, that they would be turned their secrets would be unveiled and they would find forgiveness and life in you. And Lord, we do continue to pray 
for those who serve your church in the advance of the gospel amongst the nations of the earth. And we're particularly grateful for Carol Arnold, for her long-suffering service and her work with EPI to encourage and train pastors, especially in Africa. Continue to strengthen Carol and grant her the resolve that she needs, the physical strength that she requires to continue her service of ministry. May you bring fruit out, especially from the conferences that she holds in training pastors and their wives to love one another and how to minister together. Lord, we remember Kevin Bigelow and the launch team from Christ Church East. We're grateful for the opportunity to support and to encourage them as they go out to plant a new church in, the Jack- in Jacksonville Beach. Would you provide them every resource and would you bring people to new faith in Jesus? Bless Kevin and Jen, watch over them and keep them Grant them strength and wisdom in the weeks and months ahead. Father, we are mindful of those who suffer in our own midst today, afflictions of various sorts. And Lord, we do ask that you would draw near and give comfort, that you bring healing and peace to all those who suffer in our midst. We pray for Branson Bishop. We pray for Denise Cease. We pray for Gar Gerganus. We pray for Hector Harima, Jay Kirk, and especially for George Mitchell. We ask God that you have mercy on this little guy, that his transfusion will take, and that he would live a long, a long life full of thanksgiving and joy as a result of all the deliverances that you've brought upon him in these early days. And so, Lord, fill his body with health and well-being. And, Lord, we are mindful of all of our children We remember them before you today as their school year starts, and we ask God that you would fill their minds with curiosity, that they would learn about your world, the world that you created, and in learning about your world, would they be drawn to you, fill them with wisdom and knowledge. May they grow in stature, and may they grow in favor with you and all people. Bless their teachers Grant them wisdom in directing their students to the fountain of truth, to the source of life. Give them endurance in every way as they instruct our kids. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless all of the children of this church, even those who grow and advance and mature in years. We're thankful for our college students, and we particularly pray for Logan Mahelski, And we ask that you would bless him as he goes to the University of Central Florida. Watch over him and keep him. May these years be fruitful. Grant him Christian fellowship and strongly support him. Be with all our children who are away at college. Give them fellowship. Nurture their souls. Draw them nearer to you. And may their lives be devoted to your service. And Father, these are our prayers, our supplications that we raise before you. Thank you for freely hearing us, and we pray in the name of our Savior who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.